would turn on to or open up to Genesis chapter 24. Um, yeah, that's where we're going to. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. I don't know how you guys are doing. Um, the weather this past week was like really incredible, great to enjoy. And now I feel like my face got hit by a truck. Okay, like uh, my sinuses today are uh, insane. And maybe you're in the same boat. If so, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm with you. You're not alone. So um, we're gonna we're gonna push through today. We're gonna try to make it. We're gonna try to make it through. Um, Genesis chapter 24. That is where we are um, as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. This morning, exploring everyday providence and a life of faith. Now, uh, I recognize that there might be some language there that is that is new when we talk of the Lord's providence and God's providence. Like that may be uh, that may be a concept that you are somewhat unfamiliar with, which is okay because we are going to um, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that a little bit this morning and how the Lord. Lord's providence informs the way that we go about living a life of faith. Okay, so that's where we are going to, um, that's where we're going to be at. Thanks, Josh, for reading um, this morning. This was the longest chapter. This is the longest chapter um, in the book of Genesis. And if you um, if you noticed, which you probably did because Josh pointed it out, we skipped a section in there. And we did so because it is a retelling of the events that took place just prior to, okay? Um, so, uh, don't feel like, man, what was in there that we just glossed over? You can go back and you can check it out. It's a retelling of the events that led into um, to that as we sit around around the table and, and family shares conversation, okay? Um, so, uh, why don't we pray? Um, why don't we pray? Uh, and, um, yeah, for, pray for me. And um, let's just pray that the Lord would help us to see Christ from Genesis chapter 24. Uh, Lord, we are um, grateful and humbled to be able to come before you as your people. We are grateful that we are able to open up your word, um, which you have spoken to us. You have preserved it throughout the ages. And we are reminded this morning that um, it is capable of transforming the hardest of human hearts. And so our uh, request, our desire this morning is that you would help us to see the cross and the faithfulness of our King Jesus who saves us, who sustains us, and strengthens us by His Spirit to lean into a daily reliance uh, on you uh, for hope and joy in life. We love you and we are grateful for your love for us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So what does it look like to apply the doctrine of God's providence in and to everyday life? That's a question that I want us to, to consider as we begin our time uh, together. And, and maybe even to go one step further, what does it look like if we fail to apply this doctrine or perhaps reject this doctrine altogether? Now, what, a, what an incredibly applicable series of questions. We see a great example of belief and application from Genesis chapter 24, but it would be helpful to begin with some understanding of what this all means. And so maybe we ask the question this way, what is the providence of God? We're talking about how important it is for living a life of faith. I do believe that it would be most helpful for us to come around together and to embrace the same understanding of what God's providence is and what it what it means. Interestingly enough, question. Uh, Question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism seeks to answer this question for us, to which you go, wait, now we've got another concept that I'm unfamiliar with. We started out with providence, and now you're talking catechism. Where in the world am I supposed to, uh, where in the world am I supposed to go? Um, the catechism is, is very simply put, a series of questions and answers about God 
that serve to instruct Christians in and toward truth. To which the Heidelberg states, The providence of God is the almighty and everywhere present power of God. Now I'm about to say a few other things, okay? But, but if you're taking notes, that would be helpful, okay, for you to, to take note of. The providence of God is the almighty and everywhere present power of God. Whereby, as it were, by His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Yet all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Now there were a lot of examples in there. Let me go back and take the first part of that statement and the last part of that statement. And let me piece it together um, so that maybe we can, we can embrace one cohesive thought. The providence of God is the almighty and everywhere present power of God. Yet all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. So we're saying something about, about the power of God. Ultimately we're saying something about the character and nature of God, aren't we? We're we're making a a confession, we are making a profession about His uh, work and the way in which He functions. That He is indeed all-powerful. That He he makes and sustains, that He extends, that He preserves. These are all things that we observe in light of the 27th question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Through this story, following... In Genesis chapter 23, Abraham's purchase of a plot of land in Canaan to bury Sarah, we see an emphasis placed by Moses, the author of this book, on the steadfast love of God. As we heard the the whole thing read from Josh in the beginning, perhaps you you recognized that repetition. There was a degree of it, right? It's, It's multiple occasions, four times, I believe, in which the steadfast love of God explicitly is mentioned. But that's not all. In fact, five times we see reference to blessing, as well as a reliance on God's providence and worship in response to His provision. So, so what do we observe as we survey the landscape of Genesis chapter 24 before we, before we kind of hone in on this chapter specifically? Broadly, what do we observe? Steadfast love of God, blessing, reliance on God's providence, and worship in response to his provision. Some of these things we're going to get to a little bit more uh, next week, which I'll tell you more about in just a moment. But one thing that we can say is this, that, that this story as with most of Genesis, reads beautifully. All right, guys like Josh and, 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 and those of you who have participated in the reading over the past uh, months as we've gone through this book, man, it is indeed a sweet time to just come around this historical narrative and just to embrace the beauty by which it is written. It's been a joy. It's been incredible. The few things that we observe in this story, it really functions in the same way that that many other stories work and function. Think about your familiarity with the narrative and the way that narrative oftentimes flows. Any book that you might pick up off of a shelf, there are typically things like calls. Here we observe a call. A call to find a bride for the chosen son. We observe a a rising action. 
here in Genesis chapter 24 and identifying of a potential wife followed by a brief exchange between Abraham's servant and a very, as we will talk about next week, self-absorbed and selfish brother. We see a, a climax in Genesis chapter 24 as Rebekah's response to the servant's proposition to return with him and Mary Isaac is answered. And finally, a resolution as we come to the end of Genesis chapter 24 and we observe consummation. We see through Genesis chapter 24 that strength for practice of a life of faith is rooted in a bold confidence of the nature of our Creator God. Let me say that again, because this is an idea that we're going to come around over the next two weeks, this morning and next week. Strength for practice of a life of faith is rooted in bold confidence of the nature of our Creator God. This is specific to Genesis chapter 24, but in many ways it could, be, it could be said over and over again every week, couldn't it? The things that we see emphasized about who God is from this passage. What is it from Genesis 24 that enables us to say and embrace this idea? Three observations that we are going to make. Number one, God's guidance of his people in verses 1 through 21, which is where we are going to find ourselves this week. God's guidance of his people. Maybe we would uh, prefer to say it this way, attributing a specific characteristic to God, that God guides his people. Right? Did you know that about God? Right? Genesis chapter 24 paints this picture for us of a, of a God who guides his people as we observe God's guidance of his people. This is where we'll be this morning. As we look ahead to next week, we will look at God's guarding of his people from verses 22 through 49. And then finally, God's comfort of his people in verses 50 through 67. So if you're here this morning, then I got you for the next two weeks. Right, Because you've got to come back and see how all of this resolves itself. Let's look this morning at God's guidance of His people. God guiding His people. Verses 1 through 21. So this morning we see, we see the turning of a page. This morning we see a, a transition. The last words that we hear from Abraham directed... Toward his faithful servant. Laying out his desire for Isaac to take for himself a wife. It's very clear, very early on, that Abraham is indeed advanced in years. He is old. And he is blessed by the Lord. We see an explicit instruction from Abraham in verses 3 and 4 to his servant. Look with me there beginning in verse 3. Abraham says this. He is, he is old. And these are the final words that he, that he mouths to his servant. He says, Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. Again, super clear, super explicit. Among whom I dwell, verse 4. 
But instead, we'll go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Now, perhaps the death of Sarah has given way to something in Abraham. Right? Perhaps this realization that time is limited. Perhaps it was Isaac's age. We can't be entirely sure, but we can say this, that there is an increased urgency from Abraham's perspective as it pertains to putting certain things in order. Can you relate with this? Right? As, as seasons draw to a close, as perhaps life begins to draw to a close, there is this this innate desire that we oftentimes feel, right? To, to begin putting things in right order. Right? To, to make sure that those who, who, who are going to be left, right, are cared for. Right? That they are placed in a position to be most successful. It's not just in terms of like leaving life, but this relates in many other ways as well, doesn't it? Think about job transition. Right, you leave one job and you seek to, to go into another field. Oftentimes, like there is this emphasis on, hey, make sure that the person behind you is like in a right place to succeed. Your college student, right? Involved in campus ministry, perhaps. Right, again, there's this emphasis oftentimes on, on making sure that the right things are in place so that success might indeed continue. In this case, a a bit of background is helpful to best understand this really clear instruction. Abraham is most aware of Canaan's future and Isaac's place in this redemptive story. And as a result, he has no interest in Isaac marrying a woman from Canaan. That's a part of the instruction that he provides to Eleazar, his servant. After all, the, the Canaanites who are becomingly in, becoming increasingly more corrupt as history would support are destined for destruction. Marrying Canaanite then would be less than desirable. In addition, allowing Isaac to go himself is totally out of the question. Let's consider again what Abraham has to say as this, as this interaction takes place between he and his servant. What if Isaac were to make the trip himself? What if I go and I find a woman, Eleazar says, and she is unwilling to come back with me? Ought I take Isaac so that she can see that this is indeed legit, that there is a real Isaac, right? And that there is a husband and it's not just some, some scam, Well, what if Isaac were to, to go and to, to meet a, a nice girl, right? Meet a nice girl and, you know, settle down as she was, as eager as he was. What would keep him from returning from Abraham's homeland as opposed to journeying all the way back to Canaan, right? No, Isaac's place is here. It's the message of Abraham as this this dialogue is exchanged. Isaac's place is here. And as a result, Abraham looks to his most trusted servant, asking that he would commit himself to the mission of finding a bride for his son. Again, a very specific ask, isn't it? To which he responds really positively in verse 9. Look with me at verse 9. The servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now, I don't know when the last time you placed a hand under a thigh was, 
right, in order to, to solidify a, an exchange, a deal. But we are familiar with, with other instances of, of physical action that serves to support this, right? Think about what it means when we shake someone's hand, right? I don't know how much that, that happens anymore. I feel like handshaking's a dying art. So let's, um, let's bring it back and let's talk about like, just like dapping out, right? One of these. Knuckles, fists, right? It's the, it's the same type thing. Or maybe an exchange of rings. Here we are witness to a physical action that serves to communicate a commitment. Now I want us to consider this for just a moment from the perspective of the church, Physical actions that serve to display commitment. We have been given the gifts of the ordinances. One of which we observe every week. Physical acts of obedience. The Lord's table and baptism that serve to communicate a commitment. Now what is the commitment that is being communicated? Let's be super clear on this. Number one, it is Christ's commitment to us. Right, we, we come to the table, right? and we, we've mentioned this a number of times over the past few weeks. We, we actually physically take this tangible piece of bread, and we dip it into the juice, and then we take. And Paul makes it clear that this is something that is practiced by God's people in order to remind us of what Christ has done upon the cross. Right, that he, his body was, was broken for sinners, that his blood was shed. Making forgiveness for our rebellion something to be grasped as we gaze upon him in faith and the hope of the resurrection. Are you guys with me? We come to the table and we, we take and we are reminded this physical act that draws us into a deeper understanding of Christ's commitment to you and I. Think about baptism. Right? What is, what is baptism? We observed baptism just a few months ago. We saw a number of individuals who were, who were submerged. Right? They, they stepped into water. Right? And they were, they were submerged under the water. There was this physical act right? representative of our death with Christ. His commitment to us. And now our commitment to Him. Right, we come and we participate in these actions that serve this purpose. This is noteworthy for the following reasons. Last week, from the life of Sarah, we saw a beautiful picture of a Proverbs 31 type woman. Before the composition of Proverbs 31. Faithful to her husband and humble in posture before the Lord. Now... We step into Genesis chapter 24 and we observe a commitment that shapes a listener's framework of living out faith. Does that make sense? What does it look like to live out faith in light of this this comprehension, perhaps elementary in the beginning, but growing in depth of the providence of God? This is what we are talking about. Three things that we learn through this sequence of events about the man of faith. Now I'm going to refer to it that way, the man of faith, because here we have Eleazar, the servant of Abraham, who displays for us very specific characteristics. However, we can very easily say this, right? That this is something that that flows over into the life of every believer. This is what it looks like to be an individual of faith. So when I say man of faith, know that I'm connecting with what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 24. But that does not mean that it's not applicable for all the ladies in the house, right? 
So, so hang with me and be patient. Do a little bit of work and connect to the dots with me. Number one, the man of faith is a man of action. The man of faith is a man of action. To be an individual of faith is to be an individual of action. We see this here, and we're going to talk about it in just a moment. Number two, the man of faith is a man of confession. The man of faith is a man of confession. And finally, the man of faith is a man of reliance. And so there's some repetition there, but there are three different roles that we observe. Number one, action. Number two, confession. And number three, reliance. Really, confession and reliance, we're going to kind of pair those two together. But I think that we can acknowledge that they are two, um, two, two slightly different things. So let's look at number one. The man of faith is a man of action. Look with me at verse 10. We're back in the text. Go there with me. Verse 10, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed. So we've had hand under thigh at this point. We've had this physical act that displays a a mutual commitment to one another that results with Eleazar gathering together camels, 10 of his master's camels, and departing. He took all sorts of choice gifts from his master. We see that there in verse 10. Why? Well, because he's trying to convince a Nice young lady to come back and to, to marry his master's servant, right? And so having some gifts is helpful, right? And he rose and he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. We see a lesson on action and order from a Christian perspective. Take note of that. Action and order from a Christian perspective. Abraham's servant, Eleazar, takes the time to organize He takes the time to to organize before making the appropriate steps toward the accomplishing of the mission into which he had been called. Steps taken towards the accomplishing of the mission into which he had been called. Movement toward a goal held out by a master. Are you following along with me here? What a clear depiction of the life of faith. Yes, living a a life of faith requires action. Living a life of faith requires movement toward a goal defined by one in a position of greater authority than those who serve him. Are you with me? In this case, Eleazar's faith in God serves to inform his obedience to his master. What I want you and I to do is to consider this in light of what the New Testament has to say in connection with call and mission. Because this is what we're establishing here. To live a life of faith is to live and embrace a life of action. So what does the New Testament have to to say? Look with me at Luke chapter 24. Feel free to turn there if you would like. If not, make a note of it. Go back and check it out later. Beginning in verses 46 and reading through 47. He also said to them, this being Jesus, that is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. We continue on. John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said again to them, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. 
We continue on and we, we look to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You receive power, Luke writes, when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So let's bring this back. Call and mission from a New Testament perspective. How does what we observe here in Genesis chapter 24 shape this? In the same way that Eleazar displayed loyalty to his master, as Christians, we practice spirit-empowered loyalty to ours. So when we start talking about what it looks like to, to live a life of faith, it is to embrace Christian mission and call. Right, to, to pursue after holiness, reliant not on our own strength, but on the strength provided by the Spirit. You're sitting here and you go, man, I've been pursuing after a life of holiness. And I have failed again and again and again and again. Thus the struggle of sin. But are you relying on your own strength or are you relying on the strength of the Spirit? I we're called to embrace Christian mission. Again, Luke chapter 24, John chapter 20, Acts chapter 1. To go and to be about the work of gospel proclamation. Mission in Genesis chapter 24. To go. Right, some, some degree of preparation. Followed by a going. Right, a movement outward. We bring this back home. We consider it from a New Testament perspective. And we say this, that as sons and slaves to Christ, we now hold out our lives as we are taken captive by the one who works for and in sinners. Let me say that one more time. Who is our master? Right here we observe Eleazar's commitment and obedience to his master. Action flowing out of this. Who is our master? It's Christ Jesus. Right? He, is our, he is our king. He is our master. He has saved us. He has rescued us from eternal separation and wrath to which we are eternally grateful. As a result, we hold out our lives, having been taken captive by the one who works for us and in us. This could not be more important. This could not be more important. A gospel-informed perspective on action. Let's bring it back for just a moment. Our movement is made possible only in that God has taken the initiative to move toward us. Did you get that? So are we talking action for action's sake? No, we're not. Are we talking action that flows out of our own strength? No, we are not. The gospel says this, that, that we can now move because God has moved. Right? Knowing life. Because in our sin, God sought us and God saved us. Knowing joy. Because in our despair, God sought us and saved us. Knowing purpose. Because in our rebellion, God what? You're catching a theme here. Right? He sought us. And he saved us. Right? Our, our action, get this, do not miss this. Okay, our, our action, our mission, 
Our lived out purpose and service is possible through the strength that God alone provides in light of His indescribable grace. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In Genesis chapter 24, we observe... Abraham calling Eleazar into mission. The embrace of this of this very specific, very particular mission to which Eleazar acts in obedience. In a similar way, Christ calls sinners saved by grace into mission for the good of those separated and the glory, 1 Peter chapter 4, of his name. Not only is the man of faith, a man of action, but he is a man of confession. Again, gospel-shaped action. Maybe we even we even pair these two <coughs> excuse me, these two ideas together here, and we say that the man of faith is a man of confession and reliance. Again, look with me at verse 10. The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside of the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. Verse 12. This is important. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. In verse 12, we observe from Eleazar a confession and a display of reliance on God and his sovereignty for the success of the mission to which he has been called. Think about the way that this the way that this plays itself out. After hours of preparation and travel, Abraham's servant here in verse 12 slows down and he what? He prays. Right? He slows and he prays. Now we're going to get to what this says about Eleazar in a moment, but first we consider what this says about God. There is a a clear comprehension of size in light of Eleazar's response. Here's what I mean. Eleazar recognizes that he is very small and that God is very big. Eleazar's control is, is limited. Right, the fact that he looks to God in this moment is a confession of that. After all, this is what prayer is, isn't it? It says that God is God and that we are not. That His power and wisdom supersede our power and wisdom. I love the relatability of Genesis chapter 24. Because the reality is, 
And I think that we can all identify with this. We are great at conceding these points when it comes to to parting the sea. We're we're great at conceding these points when we observe these, these truly like miraculous and noteworthy actions of the Lord recorded throughout Scripture. Acts that are understood to be impossible, right? Outside of supernatural intervention, what we might describe as miracles, right? Unexplainable and incapable of reproduction by human means. But when it comes to understanding God's providential power in the everyday, we are oftentimes disconnected, right? There's a, there's a separation. There is a divide as it relates to this, this particular area. Not here, though. We might feel it. We might be able to acknowledge it. But here in Genesis chapter 24, it's undeniable. Right? God, not I, but you. You must work. You must grant success. You must ordain. Again, look back at what, at what Eleazar has to say in verse 12. All of the preparation and all of the action and now this slowing. Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master. I'll be honest. Right, that this idea... This idea is one that God has been so super faithful to grow in me over the past two years. In fact, whether we realize it or not, like we oftentimes sing a song that, that communicates this, this same idea. From beginning to end, this is our position. From salvation, right, a work of grace and all of God, to His building of His church as His people, we look to Him, understanding that unless the Lord builds the house, what? In vain, its builders strive. What does that mean when we say that? What does that mean when we when we sing that? We're confessing. Right? We're confessing our uh, limitation, right? Like we're confessing our need. We are confessing our reliance. I said in the beginning that the Lord has been so super faithful to grow this idea in me over the past two years. Why? Well, because he called like Courtney and I and a number of you to be a part of the work of planting this church here in Carrollton. And again and again and again, we have come back to this realization that unless the Lord builds it, all that we do is vain, vanity, vanity. Right? If it's for us, if it's for our fame, if it's for our recognition, then it is for nothing. And so we, we embrace humble posture. Because the Lord has been so super faithful to again and again and again draw us into this reality. That it is He who works. It's, it's undeniable. It produces within us a a very specific posture. It frees us from weight. I love what Timothy Keller has to say in his book on prayer, in which he says this, that prayer gives us relief from the melancholy burden of self-absorption. 
right? This, this stepping back, this stepping out of, and this and understanding whose story this is. Right? Who, who dictates its events? Right? Who not only who not only allows success, but defines success? God. All of this serving to, to set us on a path of eager and joyful obedience. This is a model for the life of faith. And yet the question remains, how in the world would the Lord respond? Look with me at verse 13. Coming out of the prayer, we see, Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. We're continuing on in it right now. And the daughters of the men of the city are coming to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please, let down your jar that I might drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Also, this is a big deal. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, again, your appointing, right? your words, your providence, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Look with me at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance. A maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar up and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. To which she says, verse 18, Drink, my lord. She quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. Verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, Wait a second, I will draw water for your camels also. No small task. Until they had finished drinking, verse 20. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. How many camels did uh, Eleazar bring out of Canaan? Ten. Anybody have a pet camel? (laughs) Man, it's hard enough for me to keep my dog's water bowl full. Camels drink a ton of water. I mean, a ton of water. We're talking like 15 to 20 gallons per camel. They're just lopping it up. This is a woman that is willing to work. And she must have thought that Eliezer was the most inconsiderate and rude individual. Verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. We see here that that God guides His people. That God guides His people, calling them, calling us into a daily reliance on Himself to work out His providence in our lives. Here, Eleazar gets a glimpse. Verse 15, before he had even finished praying, Rebecca arrives. Well, let's just use some common sense for just a moment. If that is true, then it would stand to reason that God was answering the prayer of Eleazar well before he even offered it. 
We know this because we just read it. Moses knows this because he wrote it. And Eleazar is coming to know this. For you and I, let's again step back and consider this from a New Testament perspective, right? We consider Christ crucified before the foundation of the world. Long before we were made aware of our need, crying out to Him for forgiveness. Now we can know this, that there is forgiveness through the sacrifice of Christ. There is redemption and reconciliation to God. We know this and we are being made to know this. We find ourselves fitting in every one of these categories. In terms of our understanding of who God is and what he is doing. Verse 17, Eleazar ran to meet her. Eager to see how the Lord is working. Here's what I want us to think about as we begin to close out our time this morning. Again, this is just part one. We've got two more elements that we're going to unpack next week. As we close out our time, we are left asking. Now we can cheat a little bit because, again, Josh read the whole thing for us. So we know how it ends, but we find ourselves taking a pause in a bit of the rising action, don't we? Will Rebecca be the response to the prayer of Eleazar? We know ultimately again that the answer is yes. God is in the act of blessing his people through the everyday and the call of this new matriarch into the most important family in the world. Yes. This is a model of the faith-informed life. This is the model of a faith-informed life. And yet we know that Eleazar is not perfect, don't we? Eleazar is not perfect. His faith is not perfect. Neither is yours or mine. It can be. If it were, then there would be no need for all of this. The continued expansion of this family. right, Ushering in the one who would demonstrate perfect faith in the plan and provision of God in the everyday and in the extraordinary. And I don't want us to cruise past this. Right? We, we mentioned it earlier on, but I do want to make sure that we're grasping one major point that I'm seeking to, to, to have us all walk away with a deeper understanding of this morning. And that is this, right? that God providentially works in the everyday. Right, that God is at work, that we go out into the world confessing our need and our reliance. So what do we do? Uh, how, do we, how do we respond to what we see here in Genesis chapter 24? What is, what is Moses' desired response from those that he is writing to? How do God's people respond throughout the ages to what we see here in Genesis chapter 24? As those who have been crucified with Christ, we now embrace a faith-informed life. We said this in the beginning, right? As those who have been crucified with Christ, we embrace now a faith-informed life, trusting in and acting out of this deeper understanding of how God works. And so the call, we really can boil it down to this. Here it is. 
Now we're going to, in just a moment, ask a series of questions that are going to assist you and I in diagnosing whether or not these realities are present and active in our own lives. But we need to get the statement first, and the statements are as follows. Number one, embrace the life of faith. Embrace the life of faith. Giving ourselves to the work of God in submission to the desires of our King who has served His people so fully and so faithfully. Embrace the life of faith. Give yourself to the work of God. And a worshipful response to our King who calls us into mission, into certain pursuits for the Christian life, having so fully and faithfully substituted Himself in our place. Embrace the life of faith. That's number one. Number two, trust in and act out of an understanding of God's providential work in the everyday. Let me say that one more time. I trust in and act out of an understanding of God's providential work in the everyday. To which you might be saying this morning, I don't, I don't know if that's where I am. To which I would say, that's, that's fair. And that's a really helpful first step. Let's again look at a few questions that might help us to diagnose the living out of this action in our lives. Number one. Again, these are intended to help us to diagnose as we prepare to come to the table and to close out by worshiping as we observe here in Genesis chapter 24. A, a, a repeated uh, result of the Lord's favor and faithfulness being observed in the lives of His people. First question, do my rhythms communicate confident confession? Or do my rhythms communicate confident confession? We talk a lot about rhythms here. We all have them, Right? Like we all have rhythms to life. The question for you and I to ask is this. Is it culture that is defining our rhythms or is it the character of God that is defining our rhythms? Do my rhythms communicate confident confession? That's number one. Number two, do my rhythms communicate humble reliance? Do my rhythms communicate humble Reliance. If the answer is yes, praise God, what a gift. Right? What a gift. If the answer is, is no, then the right response for you and I would be, again, to stand in awe of the cross of Christ. Right? To, to stand in awe of the cross of Christ. But this scene in human history, which, which communicates so perfectly and so beautifully the heart of God and His desire to bring about redemption for the nations. Glorifying Himself through this incredible work, the hope and joy of the resurrection. Do we look at this scene and find encouragement and strength for embracing the type of life that we are talking about this morning. A faith-informed life. Let's consider these questions as we prepare now to come to the table. As we mentioned again, right, earlier on, an act that is indeed a gift from the Lord that serves to remind us of His commitment to us Right, and now, our commitment to Him. What a gift.